This week on a lively experiment, it's back to school with a few bumps along the way. We'll tell you what they are and what the governor has to say. And how long will Governor Raimondo keep the state under a state of emergency? A lively experiment is generously underwritten by for more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us this week, WPRI Target 12 investigator Steph Machado, historian and columnist Ed Acorn, and Boston Globe reporter Dan McGowan. Welcome, everyone. I'm Jim Hummel. It is great to have you with us this week. Well, it was a day that parents, teachers, and students have been waiting for the first day of school. Some parents opted to keep their kids home and continue distance learning, while others eagerly arrived at schools that looked a lot different than they did six months, months ago when they closed. Governor Raimondo, in her weekly briefing on Wednesday, talked a lot about schools. Here's a highlight reel of what she had to say. Kids went back to school on Monday, and we had an excellent return to school. Over 100,000 Rhode Island children chose in-person learning. Monday was also the launch of our K-12 testing service, which I believe is unlike any other state. We've chosen to set up a separate, dedicated K-12 testing and contact tracing system. We have 14 testing sites all across the state. We've swabbed at those 14 testing sites just about 300 people in two days. In, of those 300, we had eight positive cases. You know, anyone who has anything to do with K through 12 schools, public or private, write that number down, 844-857. 1814. It's a scheduling service to schedule your COVID test. We can guarantee same-day results. If you have symptoms, you're going to receive two tests. You're going to get a rapid test, and you'll have your results that day. And then you're also going to get the more definitive PCR test, a little more accurate, and you'll get those results within 48 hours. Since Monday, we've deployed more than a dozen assistance teams to help schools with everything from containing positive cases to operational check-ins with school leaders. We want to get to a place where someone can test positive, we keep a lid on the virus, and school continues. So, so far so good, and we have what seems to be a robust and um, sturdy system. So we'll get to the testing in a minute. Steph, you have been neck deep in this all week. Uh, what are your observations just the first couple of days of school? Well, the biggest complaints that I'm hearing so far are from the Providence Virtual Learning Academy. We have you know, more than 6,000 students um, who signed up for this academy because they wanted a virtual option. They were, parents were uncomfortable sending their kids back to school. And they say, a lot of them say it has been a mess. It's been chaotic. We're seeing teachers with on the elementary school side with rosters of um, 52 kids, on the high school side, rosters of 200 students because the high school students are learning independently um, in the Virtual Learning Academy. I think parents and teachers have told me that they feel like they're being punished because they didn't pick going back to school in person, which was the preferred 
you know, the superintendent of Providence and, you know, the governor and everyone wants kids back in school. And they said they felt like they were sort of being punished. They were being ignored. They were being left behind by choosing the virtual academy. And the school officials, of course, say we don't have an unlimited supply of teachers, but that, you know, they chose to do this standalone academy. And so they they knew the numbers that they had and they just haven't been able to to have as much one-on-one teacher-student time because there's just not enough teachers teaching virtually. So that's one of the biggest issues so far. Dan, you had a, a story this morning we're taping on Thursday about how there seemed to be a lot of the elementary school kids in the Virtual Learning Academy just left behind. They didn't get a link. They didn't get a call. They didn't get a text. And again, the union, there's a little bit of finger pointing going on here. What What is your thought when you get to the bottom of it? What happened? Well, Steph's right. Look, that's the biggest concern so far, right? We're, we're having a situation where um, there, there are so many people that are enrolled, so many students that are enrolled in these virtual learning classes that with the school district in Providence was just not prepared for this. Um, they knew what they were getting into, right? They already did distance learning, but they were just not prepared uh, in, like, as well as they should be. Um, and you're right, there's some finger pointing happening. You've got the city of Providence basically saying, or the Providence School Department basically saying, there were teachers, there were patterns of teachers who did not make the contacts with their elementary school students that they, um, that they were expected to. And of course, the Providence teachers push right back and say, look, you overloaded us with 52 uh, student rosters, kind of split between you know, 26 and 26 morning, afternoon, and that's a major problem. So there's a lot of finger pointing happening. Um, I think Steph's right. Look, it just boils down to the numbers being overwhelming. It's kind of ironic that that for all the concern about reopening schools, the problem so far, the biggest problem is the virtual learning. Interesting. Ed? Yeah, I think one story that's not well told is how incredibly safe uh, children are from uh, COVID-19. They're they're very poor transmitters of the disease. And so uh, I think a lot of the fear surrounding this is, rather heightened um and i am pleased to see children going back to school i think children you know the children are more likely to be killed of lightning strikes than COVID 19 and, and there are other issues with the mass too right I, right the- well yes and i i think uh the science does not show children have to be masked up all day and they can transmit disease easily by being masked. So I think that that's another issue. Uh, I think it's very uh, sort of cruel to children to keep them in masks all day. So I, I don't subscribe necessarily to the panic narrative because uh, children are much more likely to uh, die of uh, common influenza and we don't take all these uh, crazy steps for that. And teachers as well are much more likely to be uh, killed by influenza than, than uh, COVID-19 uh, contracted from children. So yeah, I but, but that- just, to, just to jump in there, Ed, I mean, it, it, the thing is, I tend to agree that the science seems to point that, that to the idea that young people are, are not going to be as big a transmitters. I think uh, that generally appears to be true, although you certainly hear differing voices in terms of whether you should wear a mask or not. But at the same time, right, I mean, we're talking about Rhode Island has a much larger percentage of, of teachers over the age of 50. I think we're 22, 23 percent. So, you know, you are you do have teachers who are, you know, at that that sort of more high risk, uh, you know, age. And, and I think that is something to consider, although, again, 
you know, the, the general consensus in the first couple of days of school is virtual learning has been a little bit of a problem. The actual in-person learning right. has, been, has gone much better. And another, right. note, another note there is I have heard from a lot of parents who they're not so worried about their kid getting the virus, but they're very worried about their kid bringing it home. I interviewed a mom who said she lives in a family home with eight members of her family. They all have jobs that they go to in person, and they're really worried about if they have to quarantine, if they have to be isolated and lose their income. So that right. is a calculation. It's not just my kid might get the virus. It's more what happens if they get exposed, their teacher's exposed, they bring it home. Even if no one is deathly ill, there would still be a period of time where people are out of work and isolated. So that's going into the calculation right. for some parents when they sign up for the virtual option, assuming they think it's going to you know, be a similar education. Right. Well, fortunately, children are very poor transmitters of this disease. It's, it's almost like a miracle how, how, how little children are affected. And also, uh, it, uh, it's just, um, I don't know, I lost my train of thought. Is there a, but is there enough science, Ed, to, right. uh, you know, there's so much that we know. We always thought it would, it would be more detrimental to older people. And then you see these stories on the news of people in their 30s and 40s that get this horrible respiratory and all of a sudden they're dying. Now, I know that's the anomaly. You know, that can happen with other right. things. But I wonder if there's enough body of evidence to show that the kids are not as great in transmitting. There is, there is. My, my other point was uh, adults in other jobs interacting with adults in person are much more likely to transmit the disease than adults interacting with children. And some studies in, uh, uh, I believe in Finland uh, showed this, this was the case. Teachers who, who interact with children are no more likely to get the disease than the general population. So I think all these ways are, are, I'm not saying don't take any precaution. I'm just saying let's not let fear really sweep over us and damage these children's lives because but, children have to be back in school. The, the, data will, the data will tell the story over the next few months, I think, when we see how many cases there ends up being in schools and whether it's transmitting within the schools or if it's mostly people getting it outside of school and... Um, well, and that's the whole contact tracing stuff that the governor yeah. talked about. And she really highlighted yesterday, they have 19 cases. They knew they were coming. And the procedure she went through in, in great detail about, okay, we're doing this, we're isolating. And there was one school in Providence, right, where they had a staff member test, Providence, uh, test positive, didn't shut down the whole school. So I think right. that's what they're trying to do is, right, contain exactly. stuff. And it was right. a staff member who um, had not been in any classrooms. And so that made it a little bit easier for them to say, well, we're keeping the school open. We can shut down the area of the building where this staff member works, um, you know, and it didn't affect the ability to have the school open. On the flip side, we had the, um, the charter school, Blackstone Valley Prep. They had to close school because the, someone tested positive and so many staff members had to quarantine, including custodians and teachers, that they just didn't have the staff to open school. Obviously you need the custodians because they have to clean. So it also just depends on who's testing positive, who has to, who's the close contacts, who has to quarantine, and can you keep your school operational while people are at home in quarantine? Dan, just final thought on this. What are you gonna be looking for in the next month? Well, it's all about the data link Steph said. Look, we're, you know, I think that the general consensus from the governor, from Dr. Nicole Alexander Scott, from the commissioner on Health Infante Green was, Okay, 19 cases across 18 schools, so far so good. 
we're talking about a couple of days though. So let's make sure we see what the next couple of weeks look like. Let's see what, you know, as you get into more flu season. Um, so I think those are going to be the things to focus on. The good news is, you know, if you think about it, six months ago, the world was, meaning Rhode Island, was essentially set on fire by, you know, the, the St. Ray's situation, right? We shut down everything. Only weeks after that, shut down every school. Now we're in a situation where we are seeing cases and, and rather than immediately panicking and needing to go right into quarantine for everybody, we are able to, at least so far, kind of continue the process of, of, of having these schools open. I think that's a good sign for Rhode Island and for the country. All right, Dan, as you had mentioned, it has been six months. It seems like about six years since with everything <laughs> shut down in uh, early March. And we've been under an emergency order for that whole time. The governor has extended this, and there are questions now. John Marion from uh, Common Cause, Rhode Island, the ACLU, she has basically acted unilaterally. The General Assembly has been on the sidelines. And, Ed, I wonder, you, boy, you've, you've covered government here for a long time, the dynamic of what's going on, and it really does seem like the General Assembly has just taken a flyer on this. Yes, uh, and my cat wants to get in the middle of this. Uh, <laughs> Bring this her stuff. in, it's Zoom, right? <laughs> yes, the, the um, initial emergency action was uh, to keep, protect the hospitals from being overrun based on these models that were far more uh, draconian than what the evidence turned out to be. So meanwhile, this, this emergency thing goes on and on and on and on, and the governor is essentially a queen, and the legislature doesn't meet. And it's, uh, to me, it's uh, way beyond the time when, when this is necessary. I think the attorney general, William Barr, said to, uh, what, yesterday or something that this is the greatest uh, devastation of civil rights since slavery was was in effect. Uh, we've lost our constitutional republic, which is divides power among the executive and the legislative and judicial branches. And I was very active in separation of powers. I think this is very important to maintain the system of government. Otherwise, reckless things can be done and there aren't the proper checks. So I think this this emergency is ridiculous to go on and on and on and on. It's it just doesn't make sense. The initial justification for it was the hospitals will be overrun. Those models were wildly inaccurate. So uh, boy, the legislature has to get back in session. I don't think they will before the election. Uh, but uh, the governor has to back off and has to start saying people were not in an emergency situation. And uh, let's see if it happens. Well, Dan, it's it's no surprise. We've never been able to have a primary here in May because everybody thought, I've always said, let's, let's move it to May. Well, the General Assembly's in session. Well, now nobody really wants to come back in the fall because they're all campaigning. No surprise that Senate President Ruggiero was in a tough battle. And now Speaker Mattiello's in a dogfight down in, in Cranston. So I wonder whether that factors in also, too, with the hesitancy to come back. Oh, I think it's a huge factor. Look, you, you when you don't have to run on your you know most recent record when you're no knocking on doors, um, that can be really helpful. Uh, it may backfire, by the way, for, for Speaker Mattiello because I think um, you know uh, Barbara Ann Fenton is is running essentially against the inaction of the state legislature. But you know, I want to step back a minute. Uh, this is one of those moments where, and I hate to suck up to Ed too much, but. 
This is where having a strong editorial section in a newspaper, strong opinion uh, makers in our, in our community, um, where we really have a void right now. Because let me tell you something, if, if the legislature and if the governor knew that you know, they were gonna get killed in a Providence Journal Sunday editorial, um, you know, by, by a lot of this, I think they'd think twice about extending this for so long. Doesn't mean they wouldn't do it, but I think they would be thinking a little bit uh, more clearly on this because there is no question right now, the legislature is, has, has essentially given, given up to the, the, uh, the governor and, uh, you know, they could, they could push to come back. You're not hearing that very often. You're hearing a little bit from the Republicans, you're hearing from maybe some of the progressives to some degree, but uh, you, you really, the, the, the leadership has pretty, has hung pretty strong in saying, we're going to let the governor handle this. And then we'll, you know, when the governor screws something up, that's when we want to right. call people in. That, that's generally what's happened so far. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> Steph. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we are seeing, we've seen a trickle of criticism this whole entire time about the General Assembly not meeting. But I do think when the announcement was made that they weren't going to consider a budget until after the election, there was the, probably the most criticism I've seen in, you know, from Republicans and progressives. And we always see that sort of, oh, well, the Republicans and the progressives get together to form a coalition large enough to, um, you know, have influence over the, the more moderate uh, folks in the General Assembly. But they need to be meeting in order for that coalition to, to work and to be successful. Um, so we'll see how it, whether voters, you know, see through this. I mean, look, it's going to be, it would be really hard for them to campaign on, we just cut your school funding or we just raised your car taxes or what have you. That's the calculation that's being made. The question is, are voters going to take the opposite calculation by saying, you're not even meeting, you're not even doing anything. Why should I reelect you? So that's what we'll be watching for. Just if I could jump in, I, I sure. don't think the voters. I don't think the voters are going to care. They've been so frightened by this, uh, the way this has been presented, that and the, and there's no voices saying uh, we have a constitutional republic. So I don't think the public's going to care. And I think they made that calculation. The public is so frightened that they don't hold the the uh, legislature at fault for not meeting, and no They're voices are saying be calm, folks. Well, there was a miscalculation by the governor. She was not the only one. They were talking about, well, Congress is going to do something by July, by August. And I think right. they're really concerned about if they really don't get an infusion. They're basically, they're throwing a Hail Mary and hoping that Congress is going to come through, not only for the blue states, but for the red states. That keeps getting pushed off. And what, what struck me was, I asked her point blank about this a week ago at the briefing. She said, you know what? If Congress doesn't act by the end of September, we're going to have to meet. We're going to have to pass a budget. And, you know, we got to get it done. Well, then less than a few days later, they said, oh, no, 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 we're going to do it until after the election. So I think I think the speaker and the Senate president said, Governor, you may not want to be instituting huge furloughs and doing a lot of stuff, even though you're not up for reelection. It's going to have backsplash on all of us. That was just my view from the front the front seat and then having written about it. Right. The deadline in which they're waiting for Congress to do something just keeps getting later and later. For sure. Exactly. All right. Mail ballots. Uh, there were uh, probably just a little under half, a little over half people went to 
um, the polls in uh, last week's primary, and I think a lot more people are going to do mail ballots. Dan, let me begin with you on this. The Secretary of State, and the, and the Speaker took issue with this, she has on her own mailed out mail ballot applications, not the mail ballots themselves, to every single Rhode Islander. So there are a couple of things to unpack here. Will they be ready at the polls? But I wonder what your thought is, given what happened in the primary, what you're thinking about how that mail ballot voting is going to go in November. Well, the political reporter, political junkie in me says, boy, I wish they did it in the primary, if for nothing else than the chaos that would have flowed in the races, because suddenly you know nothing about your voters, you know nothing about you know how many people are going to vote. I think that's going to be the takeaway in the general election. But, you know, there are a lot of states that are doing some version of this. Many states, there are, there are states that have done this even before the pandemic. So, um, you know, I do have at least some faith that it is uh, th- that this can be done relatively smoothly. Certainly, have questions, but I think it can be done relatively smoothly. But I do think what you will see is, first of all, you're going to see one of the largest turnouts of all time, probably certainly in any recent memory, because it makes it much easier to um, to vote. And I wonder what that means at the local. I wonder what that means in District 15. How many people are going to mm-hmm. vote? In the Cranston mayor's race and the and the speaker's race, because they all suddenly now have, uh, you know, they're all going to have an easy access to a mail ballot. You know, there are many people watching this right now probably already got their their application, um, and so I, I, you know, we could see voter turnout that does not look anything like what we what we've seen before in some of these smaller races. And I think you will see at the national level, it's less interesting in Rhode Island because. Certainly, we're a state that will almost certainly go pretty heavily for, for Joe Biden. Um, but locally, it's, it, could, it could be chaotic. It could be very interesting for reporters like Steph and me. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, I think the question if, it, that I've heard over and over again this week is if she has the authority to send out these mail ballot applications to everyone, why did they not do this for the primary? And we know there was a big fight about that. The legislature was meeting at the time. And vote, and the Senate declined to, um, you know, pass a law that would have sent out mail ballot applications to everyone. But it certainly, it, it seems like Dan said that it's going to increase turnout. I mean, it's not like you know, right now, it's not like you can just go online and click a button to request a mail ballot. You do actually have to print out the form, fill it out, and send it back. And that is something that some people just aren't going to do, especially maybe for the primary when they don't necessarily know who's on the ballot. They don't care as much, but they know they want to vote for president. So we'll have to see how big turnout is. Um, and it's, like Dan said, it's gonna, it's harder for campaigns to track their male voters, which we know they are want to do, um, which will make it a, a more fun election season to cover, certainly. So will uh, history repeat itself and the speaker will be down 300 votes <laughs> on election night Bye. and say, I declare victory, we've got it wrapped <laughs> up. Ed, what do you think about this? Yeah, this is plainly illegal. I mean, we have a system... Uh, based on the laws passed by the legislature. And that's for a reason, because it protects uh, our votes from fraud, voting from fraud. And I don't think the, the, she's, you know, like we have a queen now for governor, Nellie Gorbea is just taking uh, an example from her and just ruling by fiat. And this is, I think this is a prescription for disaster in November. Now the speaker supports mail ballots and, and, and the Senate uh, resisted, but that's our system of government. We have a divided system of government. 
And I think it's going to be chaotic in, uh, in November and maybe uh, rife with fraud because some of the protections uh, Nellie Gorbea are removed against fraud. Let me ask so God, a, God knows what will happen. Let me ask a quick question before we go to outrages. And I've done this with previous panels. How do you guys plan to vote? Mail ballot, early voting or in person? Dan, let's begin with you. I love to vote in person. I think it's just really fun. <laughs> I'll be voting in person. Okay, Steph? I'll probably go by mail, but I'll, I'm going to, I'll drop it off. Yeah. To actually put it in somewhere yeah. so you're not relying on the postal service. Ed, what are you going to yeah. be doing? Yeah. In person. In person. Yeah. I think I'll go in person too. I mean, the early voting intrigues me, but I just want to go to the polls to see how, you know, to see how it looks. Cause I know we're going to be talking about it the next week. All right. Let's go to uh, outrages or kudos. Uh, Steph, let's begin with you. I forgot. I always forget to come up with the outrage. We'll I don't come do a, back to think I don't about do a kudos. Let me think. Hold on. We'll come back to you. Ed, what do you got this week? Well, my, my outrage is the attempted assassination of two sheriffs in uh, California and also the protesters outside their hospital room chanting, let them die. I think um, corporations, sports, uh, the media have been presenting a narrative where all police are racist. And I think this generates this kind of reaction in some people, members of the public. And I do think uh, we have systems uh, to, to deal with accountability for police, and we can do that peacefully. And I think mob justice and violence is just the wrong way to go, and it endangers all of us. And I feel very sorry for police officers these days with this narrative uh, really being uh, pushed heavily. Mr. McGowan, what do you have this week? My first outrage is that Steph got to pass for a little while. I think that's Wait, I, ha I have one now, but you go first. First <laughs> outrage. How many are there? We got three this week or what? <laughs> no, yeah. the, the, the thing that I would say that, that is very, uh, that, that I'm certainly outraged and more so just upset about is, I wrote about this in my newsletter roadmap this week. Uh, you know, we're seeing dozens and dozens of longtime restaurants close in this, in this mm. state, all across the state. Um, you know, and, and it's almost directly related to, to the pandemic. And as the weather turns and we start to, you know, be forced inside, I think there's, you know, unfortunately, there's real concern that um, these restaurants aren't going to be able to, to survive. And, you know, food is a major part of, of Rhode Island, right? We joked about calamari a couple of weeks ago, but it's a real thing here. Um, and it's really devastating just to see all these poor businesses, uh, you know, people who've worked really hard for a really long time go out of business. All right, Steph, you're going to redeem yourself here? I am. Okay, my outrage is about the lack of transparency around the walkthroughs that the state mm -hmm. did of the schools before they opened. Two different things. One, initially, you know, they never allowed reporters to observe the walkthroughs. People are like, oh, why do you think you get to go into the buildings? It's not for us. We're trying to observe them so we can tell the public, here's what happened on this inspection. And then the second thing is when we requested the walkthrough reports that actually say whether the schools passed or failed so we could tell parents if their school was deemed safe, Ride would not provide them and said, oh, you have to get them from all the individual districts. So I think in terms of public transparency, try, making it harder and saying you need to call 39 different districts to get their walkthrough report when and I think that Dan would agree with me. These are clearly public documents on the state level. Ride created these documents. 
um, is is my outrage. It's it is making it incredibly much harder to track down this this public information about whether these school buildings are safe. Not in the interest of transparency. Yeah, and it's public people pu- being paid with public dollars in public buildings, right, Steph? Right. There's nothing about this that is that is secret. It's it's you know the governor uh, spoke to my colleague Kim Kalunian about it earlier this week, and she said, "Oh, it's up to the districts to release them," and it's that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but you know what, Jim and, and Steph, one of the things here quickly. That- yeah, quickly. very just very quickly. It, Ride loves to be in control until they don't want to be in control anymore, and then they kick it to the districts. Happens every right. time. Folks, uh, wish we had more time. Unfortunately, we don't. It's the fastest 30 minutes you'll watch in television. Steph, Dan, and Ed, thank you for joining us, and thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week, everybody. Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.